Greetings and welcome to History Factory Plugged In, the podcast at the intersection of business and history. I'm your host, Jason Dressel, and today's podcast is a little longer than usual, but it's also very short, depending on how you look at it. And that's because our guest, Jan Lukasen, is going to cover the entire history of human civilization. So I don't know exactly how long this episode is, but if we get it under an hour, by my count, we're averaging like over 10,000 years of history per minute. So that's pretty good. So Jan Lukasen is here to talk about the history of work, which is brilliantly chronicled in his book, The Story of Work, A New History of Humankind, which came out last year. And the impetus of this conversation was that There's been so much conversation about the future of work, how the workday as we know it is over, and the the go-to-the-office concept is outdated, and blah, blah, blah. And we've all seen how much attention this topic is getting, and for good reason, by the way. Um, But first, it's good to note that all of this conversation about the future of work is really only talking about corporate office environment jobs. And as we've seen play out over the last year and really just in the last several weeks since Labor Day here in the United States, a lot of companies do have most of their office employees back in the office, especially in specific areas and industries like the finance sector in New York. But it's unquestionable uh, that uh, the overwhelming uh, post-pandemic environment has altered and really accelerated the dynamic of more people in specific professional demographics working remotely more often than they ever have before. And there's certainly a lot of data to affirm that. So when we were planning for this podcast, we were specifically looking to contextualize this focus on the future of work with the history of work. How did the work environment that so many of us have grown up in come about? And what might we be able to learn from that and consider as we all imagine what a better future of work might look like? But to be candid, that's not quite what this particular episode of History Factory Plugged In is, although we still may have a show one day more narrowly along those lines. What happened as we started to do research, we landed on Jan's book, which came out just about a year ago, as I said, and we decided that this may be a more interesting place to start. So what you're about to hear is a far more macro perspective of what work is and how it has evolved over the course of humanity. And I hope what you're going to find as fascinating as I did is how neatly Jan is able to tie together literally hundreds of thousands of years in a way that drives home both how little has changed and at the same time, how much has changed in such an extraordinarily short period of time. And what's especially interesting is how he's able to tie together the cause and effects of the emergence of tribes and nation states and technologies and currency and warfare and slavery and migration and so much more through the lens of how we fill our days to survive and have a sense of purpose. So with that context, let's jump into my discussion with Dr. Jan Lukasen, a Dutch historian who is one of the world's preeminent scholars on the history of work and labor. In addition to teaching positions at several universities over his long career, Jan is an honorary fellow of the International Institute of Social History, which he joined in 1988 and was the research director of until 2000. He has published several books, and again, his latest is the timely The Story of Work, A New History of Humankind, published by Yale University Press. So here we go. Buckle up for 700,000 years of work. 
Hello, Jan. Welcome to History Factory Plugged In. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for the invitation. Uh, your your book is is was quite the project. Um, so congratulations. Uh, it must have felt like uh, quite quite the birth. Um, but uh, I want to jump in. You know, one of the things I think, based on what I've I've read and, and understand of the project, is that uh, there are other works that study uh, the the history and field of work. Um, but but yours is unique, really, in the the broad breadth and and scope and scale of the project, um, and you know it, it really explores the history of work, both through a, a truly global uh, perspective and over a very long arc of human history. Um, you mark the beginning of what we now refer to as work as, as beginning seven hundred thousand years ago. So I'm curious, why do why do you view that time period as the origins of what we call work? Well, um, this um, this date, so to say, um, um, refers to the last split between humans and uh, the uh, great apes. So um, what uh, and Therefore, you can see that one of my first questions was, to what extent is our kind of work different from that of our uh, nearest neighbors? Uh, um, uh, and because, um, as uh, uh, I define work very broadly, so not only paid work, but also unpaid work, and then immediately you have to ask yourself, uh, well, what is the essence of unpaid work? That is making sure that we have food to survive. And collecting food is, of course, not specific for humans. Yeah? It is specific for all living uh, uh, beings. Mm. So I had to ask myself, uh, uh, first and foremost, what are there differences and what are the differences and what are the essential differences between us and, uh, let, let's say, the chimpanzees and the bonobos uh, in uh, organizing it? And then you must, uh, uh, you must conclude first that, of course, there is a lot in common between us and our uh, uh, cousins, uh, so to say, uh, so that's why I wanted to start there, just by asking this fundamental question first, and then to see to what extent we have diverged and how we have organized work differently. Mm. And you then go on to to share that ostensibly um, for 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 ninety eight percent of our existence then uh that, that work was kind of fundamentally the same um what what do you mean by that and, and what changed in the last you know two percent uh, which which i believe equates to about two thousand years well uh, well if you if you take this long time perspective and if you accept that then i can say that 98 percent we have been engaged in one type of work that is hunting and gathering so that is what uh, what has been characteristic, and then the last two percent, 
we have developed agriculture and later on industry, and uh, that's where we are now. But um, um, I think it would be a mistake uh, uh, to say that these 98%, that everything was the same. In the um, uh, revised edition of my book, uh, because it has been published recently now as a paperback, I've also uh, taken that into account by emphasizing especially one of the uh, the two main uh, developments which have taken place within this long period of hunting-gathering. And first... It is the development of, or uh, you may say, the invention of the household. And second, the invention of syntactic speech, or let's say speech. Um, And uh, I had not realized that uh, early on, but a a, a colleague of mine, uh, uh, Pat Manning from Pittsburgh, reading my book, and we, we, well, we know each other for a very long time, but he, he uh, posed the question, what about the household? Because uh, the um, great apes, they don't have households as we do have them. Let's say father and mother and children. Huh? So the the uh, essential household. There you have groups of females with children, babies and children. And you have, let's say, uh, loose males who uh, come and go but have no function in raising the children. And so the the development of households is specific for human beings, and that is only 300,000 years ago, Pat Manning uh, estimates on on good grounds, I think. Um, And that means that uh, males and females as couples work together, because if you accept that uh, uh, taking care of food and of children and raising children is the essence of work. And uh, then, of course, the uh, uh, invention of the household, so to say, is a very crucial step in our development. And second, uh, the, the development of speech because, well, that's what we are, we are now uh, talking to each other uh, over a very long uh, uh, distance. And we could not do so, of course, w- without speech. And by speech, we can communicate. We can communicate uh, experiences. Uh, we can find out what are best practices uh, at a much larger speed than we can without speech. Of course, animals do do it too, but there it goes much, much slower. So these are the, maybe the two most essential uh, inventions in this very long period in which we human beings were engaged in hunting and gathering. And then from uh, the development of speech follows what uh, I describe also in my book, developments from 45, 40,000 years ago, where we start to emigrate uh, across, uh, uh, first uh, across Africa and then from Africa out of Africa, uh, as the expression goes, and 
uh, also the development of tools, stone tools, and later on metal, uh, and so on. So that is, um, so we have to, to uh, break down this very long period of hunting and gathering uh, uh, and to to under, because otherwise it would seem that suddenly after let's say people had been sleeping for seven hundred thousand years on one morning they thought why not do it differently why not uh, uh, start agriculture of course that's not how it uh, how it how it developed how it developed you need all these steps and even more steps if we were to go more deeply into prehistory, which I suppose we are not going to do now. Yeah, but you see all these different steps, and then that's well, but that's what we call human evolution. Yeah, and and I think one of the things that's fascinating about about your work is, if I may, is the uh, kind of cause and effect, if you will, of how work evolved in response to human evolution, but also how the nature of work itself seems to impact the evolution of human civilization. Is that fair? I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think uh, you, you uh, very nicely put as you do it, because uh, um, the, uh, uh, let's say, nearly all the time that we are awake, we used to work. It's only very recently that because of uh, the development of wealth in certain parts of the world and among certain classes within these parts of the world, that, that some of us can afford to think, well, what will I do? Will I work, yes or no? But if you don't have very much, then you, you, can't, you can't afford to think like this. So if let's say the uh, uh, nearly all the hours we spend awake uh, have to be spent on work just in order to survive then i think it's logical what you say that the history of humankind uh, depends on, on on the development of work yeah and how and how to your point how how did the evolution of work uh impact the emergence of uh, currency and then ultimately uh you know the the to your point this formation of of hierarchical socioeconomic classes <clears throat> well um hierarchy uh, uh, precedes uh the development of markets and currencies and so on um you see uh with the, let's say the uh, the more complicated forms of societies that uh, uh you have uh, uh, rulers and ruled mostly in uh, more um, um religious uh, terms than we are used to so you see that the first uh, 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 big urban uh, um, uh, societies in Mesopotamia, later also in other parts of the world, in China, for instance, in northern India, there you see uh, ruling classes or uh, mostly of priests who organize society. Um, but well, uh, uh, and 
because it is in religious terms, it is not necessary that it, it was always felt as uh, unjustified or something like that. Uh, you, uh, mm. If you accept that there, uh, that there is something like a God or that there are gods and that we have to communicate with them and that some people are better in communicating than others, that is, you might say, that's a kind of functional division. But of course, it is. Uh, it's uh, one of the its consequences is the, that the priests are materially better off than the rest of the of society. Uh, the next uh, phase is when you uh, go from uh, urban societies to states, um, yeah. which also uh, started earliest in Mesopotamia, and then with states you. Uh, you uh, have states competing with each other. You have organized warfare. You have uh, the uh, 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 prisoners of war, of course. And as I described it in my book, there is a fundamental uh, choice. What do you do with prisoners of war? Do you kill them because that's what they deserve? Or are you so clever that you think, oh, no, let them live, but let them work for us. And that's the origin of slavery. Uh, uh, but that uh, precedes for many thousand years the emergence of markets. It's, it's another principle of hierarchy. Um, and then when you have uh, markets, then of course, due to success and failure in the market, uh, then you can have the type of hierarchy and social inequality uh, as we are used to now. Mm. But it, it does not start, uh, uh, social inequality does not start with markets. Yeah. Interesting. So so moving forward to uh, the more contemporary uh, era of work, and, and we'll, we'll loosely define contemporary of, of maybe the last, you know, 150 years or so of the Industrial uh -huh. Revolution, what what were some of the big innovations and forces that, that shaped how we define work today? Um, I'm kind of asking this question to then sort of set up the context of, of what we see now um, in terms of what the you know the, what the future of work looks like. But um, how how did how did sort of the modern concept of of how most of the the the, the world of you know, developed economies now kind of define work, how, how did that take shape over, over the last uh, century plus? Um, I think the, the, the main um, um, uh, innovation is the, the, the size of the workplace. So mm -hmm. you, um, um, a few minutes ago, you said, well, so uh, for a long time, and let's say as uh, agriculturalists and artisans and so on, we are basically all self-employed, yeah? Um, and that, that, of course, implies small work units. Eh? The cottage farm uh, or the artisanal shop uh, and uh, the main exception to it was the plantation. Eh? 
uh, um, where you have big units where you can have uh, uh, 50 or 100 or even a few hundred slaves organized centrally and uh, where uh, all kind of uh, 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 managerial uh, techniques have been employed. Some Some people even maintain that that's the, the uh, real start of management ideas. Um, but if we talk about, let's say, free wage labor, then the uh, um, we see that originally industry was also uh, what they call a cottage industry. So an entrepreneur, he brought, for instance, thread or wool to a number of farms uh, asked them to make uh, cloth according to uh, certain specifications, collected the cloth, and then sold it. But then, of course, it is the the household is the central producing unit. And the implication, of course, is that the head of household or the heads of household, the father and the mother, yeah, they were autonomous in uh, uh, deciding how much work to do, when to start, when to stop. Uh, 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 so the autonomy was totally within the household. Uh, and so the great uh, uh, change is that because of mechanization, uh, which was initially not so much uh, the uh, application of steam power, but of water power by water mills, uh, then uh, so these are asked for such big investments that you have, uh, and also, and they allow for uh, uh, big shops to start where you can have dozens or hundreds of people working in a factory, which uh, implies that, and that is sociologically and psychologically very important, of course, what do you do with the autonomy? People don't like to give up autonomy. You don't like to, I don't like to. Eh? So that is so essential in work, uh, uh, That, but that had to, had to be done. So you have a, an intermediate phase uh, in most of the 19th century that you have a kind of indirect uh, um, methods of, of indirect uh, uh, management. It means that, for instance, an employer, so let's say you have a, 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 a weaving factory or a spinning factory, it doesn't matter, but an employer then engages a house father and says, well, I, I want you to do this and with how many people you do it, I don't mind, as long as you do it. Eh? You get so so much per uh, yard of cloth or a meter of cloth uh, and so on. So that meant that, uh, the, 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 let's say, the actual management was left to these, uh, well, uh, uh, in fact, uh, small subcontractors. And mm. the subcontracting, that's what you see in uh, in many industries, also, for instance, in the uh, brickmaking industry, um, the employer makes sure that there is enough clay, there is enough uh, wood or peat or coal or whatever. Eh? And uh, then a group of workers says, well, we'll do it 
for so so many dollars or pounds or guilders per uh, uh, 10,000 bricks, and that's it. So management is then minimal because it's in the interest of this group to uh, work efficiently, uh, but it also it, it leaves the autonomy uh, with the group. They can divide the money among themselves as they like, yeah. Um, uh, but with the new managerial uh, uh, methods around the uh, uh, 1900s, so Taylor and Ford and well the well-known American names, uh, then these uh, then this is no longer accepted, and then you have the individual with the individual working contract who uh, works most of the time uh, for a time wage, and there is a very strong supervision. And that's, of course, the breakdown of autonomy. Uh, and what is also interesting, that the trade unions uh, and uh, socialism in general has accepted this model. So of the individual uh, working contracts, and they have done everything to uh, to uh, uh, reach good contracts. But that's not for groups; it's for individuals, eh? and also for time wages. So that is; these are the, I think the the, the main developments that we can see over time. Mm. And, and that goes not only for, uh, let's say, capitalist countries, but uh, uh, also for communist countries in in Russia, uh, in the Soviet Union, I should say, and in China. They have also adopted this system. Interesting. And we're, we're now at a period where, obviously, because of the rapid development of, of technology, particularly over the last 30 years or so, it really has changed the nature of work. Uh, case in point, the ability for us to be having this conversation right now. Um, and I, I'm, I'm curious what your perspective is in terms of how dramatic these changes really are uh, in, in the context of these very macro trends of how, uh, how work has evolved. Um, there's a lot being made of how the pandemic is dramatically going to change, you know, the nature of work. What's your perspective on that? Um, well, I'm a historian, so I'm not a futurologist. <laughs> uh, but of course, I'm also a, a, a person who lives in this time. And of, of course, I, we, we see it all happening. Um well, uh, let's say that then, um, just to go back to the beginning, uh, the basis of work is household work. And there have been uh, quite a few sociological studies which said that uh, at least until the, the end of the last century, also even in America, people spent most time at household work, if you define it very generally. Um, and I'm uh, I'm, I'm I'm not sure to which extent that has changed now. Of course, you have the takeaway, and so maybe less food is being cooked uh, in the homes than 50 years ago. Maybe that's that's an important shift. Um, I don't have the figures. I have not studied that, 
but I could imagine. So I think that's the first question that we have to ask. So the unpaid work, to what extent, so how important is it and how much time do people spend on unpaid work? Then, as to uh, paid work, uh, a, a big change that has taken place is um, uh, with the emancipation of uh, women's work that now... Uh, um, uh, uh, if you talk about households uh, in which you have, you have two partners working together, uh, both working, uh, they are spending much more work, uh, uh, much more hours uh, waking, uh, working for uh, uh, wages than before. The casualization of work, which has been very strong in America, especially, but not only there, also in Europe, has also made that um, people work many, many, many more hours. Uh, I think if uh, we compare ourselves to our grandparents, uh, and if I may suppose that your grandparents also were waged workers like mine were, uh, they did not spend uh, as much hours in, in paid work as we do with our partners now. Mm. So. Uh, what people are saying about, let's say, uh, the demise or the the, uh, the uh, uh, diminution of uh, importance of work, that is that maybe that may be true, but it's from a historically very high level yeah, of paid work. Eh? That that we are that we are, and you in the US, you have well, what I see from the figures, hardly any uh, holidays left. And it seems that everybody there is working uh, like hell uh, from morning to, to night. And that, that has also become, uh, well, let's say kind of norm. So uh, then the question, of course, is to what extent will, um, well, we have, we have many new developments. We have the, uh, become used for the last couple of years to working at home, also in an efficient way because of all the means of communication, which have been used much, much more than, than well, than we thought was possible three years ago. Eh? Uh, and uh, well, here, and uh, I guess in the US also is the question, will we return eh, to the old norm that we all uh, work in the offices and that we all work in factories and so on, or uh, where it's possible? But in, in a lot of work that is possible, whether we work at a distance. Uh, and, um, I cannot uh, make a firm prediction, of course, but uh, I definitely do not think that we will all work uh, um, uh, at a distance through the screen and so on uh, as, a, as a norm. Why not? Because uh, what I see in, in, in my story of work is that uh, work has many more functions than just taking care of uh, income and uh, making sure that we will survive. Eh? Of course, that's the basics. Eh? And if all of us would stop working for two weeks, then we all would be dead. So that is, uh, that is <laughs> and will, will stay the basis. But there is more to it. And what is more to it is, uh, especially socially, that we want to work together with other people. We want to meet them. 
but it's also we want to show ourselves. We want to show how good we are. We uh, are very dependent on recognition from others. Eh? So it is what, with a maybe posh word, I would call self-realization. Eh? That is part of work. Eh? Of course, we can realize ourselves in the nice car that we have bought and that we can show to our friends and our relatives and, and so on. But it's not only in consumption. It's really that we want to be recognized by uh, by uh, by our peers and by our uh, relatives. So, mm. and that falls away if we just work only at a distance. Yeah? Then it's uh, that then that that function. And I would guess that we cannot do without. Yeah? Of course. You can you can uh, discuss on whether that should be uh, uh, fifteen or twenty or twenty five or forty hours a week uh, that we have to meet other people, but without it, uh, I think that that would be difficult and that's not what we want. So I would at least suppose that there will be a, a kind of mixed solution uh, in the future. Again for those jobs where it's possible. Eh? Yeah, I mean, if you have to collect the garbage, that's <laughs> that's on the spot. Eh? And there yeah. you have colleagues, and that's clear. Eh? So that's one. Um, what is uh, 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 next big issue uh, is, of course, uh, automatization. Um, uh, well, there I say in my book, and I quote many examples that for 150 years now, because of mechanization, we have predictions that within a short time, the machines will take over, we will do nothing. Well, none of these predictions has come true. To the contrary, as I said, what is now the norm in America that yeah. couples together uh, work some uh, 80 or 80 plus hours a week. Yeah. That is that's something completely different. Yeah? And that has to do with um, uh, maybe also because we want to work for those sociological and psychological reasons that I just hinted mm -hmm. at. Uh, um, uh, but also because our society has become so complicated and is becoming more and more complicated that... Well, nearly every second we invite, we invent, I should say, we invent a, a new occupation. Eh? And that is what I call the controllers of the controllers of the controllers. Eh? Mm -hmm. uh, because all the links are so long that that we don't know what is, uh, what's going on. We don't trust it. Eh? You have had a big scam with the baby powder milk in in China, which we all, which was not not according to the standards, and so on. But also, uh, we say that well, uh, if you have a diploma, let's say as, as an engineer or uh, uh, whatever, that's not enough. No, no, you should take new courses, new courses, new courses uh, to catch up with the new developments. Who's going to, to, to give these courses? They have to be given. So mm -hmm. let's say the teaching part in the occupations is growing all the time. 
And then, of course, we have the development of uh, medical science and all the possibilities there. And then you have the uh, in modern countries like mine, but I, I think in America it will not be different. There you, well, you have um, 20 or 25 percent of the population is engaged in any type of medical occupation, which uh, which was inconceivable some hundred years ago. So mm. there are against mechanization are a kind of uh, not a kind of. There are many counter developments. It's difficult to predict where we will where we will get within 10 or 20 years. But I find it very unlikely that uh, work and paid work will uh, will vanish. The last uh, point, of course, is 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 autonomy in the work, eh? and that is uh, well a great discussion, as I understand, uh, in managerial sciences, and that's also the. Um, the difference between, let's say, the classical uh, managerial uh, style, which has been developed in the U.S., and there is a counter movement, has been a very successful one in uh, Japan and Korea, where uh, more autonomy is being uh, uh, given to the workers. But that is a continuous problem uh, uh, because uh, um, uh, autonomy is not just, uh, let's say, a uh, humanistic ideal, which it is, I think, eh? but it's more, it has to do with efficiency. Eh? Can people, uh, 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 do they notice that they make mistakes? Mm. Do they have the possibility to say something about it, to improve it, to, uh, uh, to improve it independently? Or do they have to ask for permission for everything and so on? So, uh, and finally, then you have the, uh, the uh, according to which norms uh, uh, are we being paid for uh, uh, for for wage work, and it's always uh, maintained in classical economy that that's a question of markets and of supply and demand, but everybody can see, I think. Uh, and certainly historian can see this, that there is so, uh, um, that it has become so illogical uh, uh, according to which principles we say that person A for task B is being paid as compared to person C for task D. There is nothing illogical and that has not much to do with markets at all. Um, it has to do with protection of uh, certain uh, occupations by diplomas and by uh, very strong organizations. So the guilds are alive and kicking, I would say. That's not something of the Middle Ages, that's something of us and now. Mm. Um, and uh, being a university professor or emeritus, emer uh, 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 professor, I know that also professors can uh, defend their own position very well. So that's, uh, I'm not talking about others. I, I know uh, how it works, but, uh, um, and, and that's what uh, a man like uh, Piketty has addressed uh, very eloquently 
couple of years ago, some five years ago, uh, that let's say the, the increase of social inequality uh, and at the same time economic growth, that that is not only illogical, but in the end also threatens uh, let's say the uh, the building of society and and the the um, uh, the degree to which people are prepared to uh, to contribute to society and to to the public goal and and so on uh, and and then of course you are uh, really a danger if if people no longer well see the logic of of, of paying taxes or of uh, and that is of course the uh, apart from that, it's you might say, at least from my personal perspective, that it's unjust. It's also a very big threat to society as a whole. Mm. Wow. Last question, Jan. As part of doing this book, what was the most surprising thing? Um... <laughs> The most surprising, maybe the most surprising thing to me was how in how many different ways we have to organize work and to organize uh, uh, recompensation for work and wages, and that it's that it's not one logical given eh? that uh, we well we can have we can have slavery, we can abolish it, and then we think we have abolished it. Uh, as we thought 200 years ago, and then suddenly you have Nazi Germany and you have Stalin, uh, Russia, and you have Mao Zedong, China, and there you have hundreds of millions of slaves again. Eh? And the end, well, as, as it occurs. So it is, yeah, maybe, maybe that was my biggest surprise. It's not, not one logical development through time, although as a historian I'm inclined to think, to talk about it like that. No, and, and that it's especially now to us, knowing the big variation in which we can organize society, in which we can organize work, that we should be aware of this. And it also makes us responsible of, of thinking of it and uh, not, think, not think, well, that's the course of history, or that's the course of the market. No, that's. Uh, I think we cannot allow ourselves that. The, the, the big variation which people in the past have organized it, it should also allow us to, to think about how do we want to organize it, knowing this variation, but also knowing that we are, we are never there. It is like... Uh, let's say the 1960s or so, we, we may have thought that. And then again in the 1990s, after the the, the, the failure of the Soviet Union, eh, at the end of history, that's where we were. Now, we definitely know that we are not. So that I think that's what it has taught me, at least. Mm. Well, let's leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for your time and input. You, you managed to cover 700,000 years in less than 70 <laughs> minutes. So uh, I think uh, I think our listeners uh, certainly got their, their time's worth. But <clears throat> congratulations on what uh, I know is just uh, an, an incredible 
uh, achievement in terms of the book. And, and thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah. Bye-bye, Jason. Thank you. All right, a big sweep of time there. Thanks to Professor Jan Lukasen. If you're interested in digging deeper into our discussion and the topic, go buy The Story of Work, A New History of Humankind, wherever you buy books. That's our show. Thanks again to Professor Jan Lukasen. We'll be back soon with a new episode. Until then, be well. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Dressel.